Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday evening chapel. This is the first chapel service on a Wednesday night for 2011. So, congratulations. And everyone took full advantage of the two weeks in between to, to get ahead on your homework, right? Well, that's the first resolution not to happen. It's our privilege to have President Harold Graves as the preacher of the evening. He is going to uh, witness to us the truth of God's word. Uh, I want to remind you of something that you saw in your mailbox sometime this week. Uh, the Hear, Hear meetings that, it will, that happen on Thursday nights, 505 in Williamson Fireside. Can you say that with me? Wednesday, Thursday nights, 505 Williamson Fireside. One more time. Thursday nights, 505 Williamson Fireside. So if you're interested in helping and in, in being a part of something that will help you allow God to restore you, um, then that's the point of those meetings. So stand with me and let's say our phrase as we begin. Hear my Lord, restore me. One more time. Hear my Lord, restore me. And now let's pray it. Hear my Lord, restore me. You've heard us as we've been praying and singing and worshiping you. You're all we want. Help us to want you more. You're all we need. Help us to need you more. We're all we love. You are all we love. Help us to love you more. And thank you for making that possible. We pray it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Good evening. Now, this morning I shared with uh, the, the um, faculty and staff in our family chapel, which we have the first Wednesday of each month, I uh, shared with them that I had received a letter of resignation from Dr. David Phillips, Vice President for Online Education here at uh, NBC. Dr. Phillips has accepted a position at Trevecca Nazarene University and will be completing his time of service with us at the end of February. Uh, Thirteen years he has served Nazarene Bible College as an innovative, effective leader in online education. And uh, we pray that God will bless him as he assumes this new role at Trevecca Nazarene University. And I know that you will be in prayer for us as, as we seek God's direction during this transition period. I hope you had a nice Christmas. Uh, we really did. Uh, this was our year to get all of our kids home for Christmas. Uh, next year we don't get them. They go to the in-laws next year, but it was our year to get them this year. And so uh, our son-in-law uh, treated us by uh, flying our daughter and two grandsons out from Kansas City uh, a week before Christmas, or really 10 days before Christmas. And uh, they packed up and left for Kansas City uh, on Monday of this week. 
So we, we were privileged to have our grandsons with us for 19 nights. <laughs> Ethan is the oldest, he's three, and, and Ethan, Ethan never, never really, Ethan never, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure that he's ever slept in a crib. Okay? Um, uh, it's a long story, but to make it short, uh, uh, while my son-in-law was finishing up his graduate studies, um, he, he, you do a lot of things in graduate studies that maybe you wouldn't do after you're fully employed. And, and so Ethan slept as a baby in the room with his mom and dad. And so uh, he's grown quite accustomed to sleeping with other people. And so for the last 19 nights, uh, he has slept with Nan and Pap. <laughs> now, uh, the truth is that his, his, his little brother, uh, Graham, is one year old, and he was in the bedroom next to ours, and Mom was taking a break from the babies, and so she was sleeping downstairs, and Nan and Pap uh, had the duty of not only keeping Ethan in bed with us, but getting up in the night with Graham. Now, we had a delightful time with them, but I can tell you that having babies really, it's for the young, okay? And, and uh, so, uh, you know, we're just kind of going through lots of different emotions right now, the withdrawal of, of, of not having the little ones around. We hear cries in the night and they're not here anymore. Um, just lots of little things like that, but but it's really worth it when when you go in and 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 you're watching Ethan, the three-year-old, in the bathtub, and and he looks up at you and smiles and says, "Pap, I love you a million." <laughs> I mean, that really, that really. But I understand my dad's philosophy. When my dad was district superintendent in southwestern Ohio, uh, our kids, the three of them, and my brother's kids, the four of them, stayed with mom and dad on the campground during camp meeting one year. Now, uh, the kids were old enough that they were getting into a lot of stuff, okay? And uh, so we came to get them on Saturday to take them back home for church on Sunday. And uh, we learned that mom had to whip a couple of them, you know, spank them through the week and, and, and little things like that. So my dad got up on Saturday night and he said these words that are etched in our family folklore. No, not folklore, it's lore. Whatever. He said, I've seen the lights of Paris and I've seen the lights of Rome, but the sweetest lights I've ever seen are the taillights on the car carrying my grandkids home. <laughs> uh, I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. Uh, I don't know if you go up north on Powers much, but you know there's a couple big hills the further north you go on Powers and and uh, for us, to, for us to get home uh, coming south on Powers, uh, we, would have to, we would have to stop there at the intersection of Powers and Stetson Hills. Are you familiar with that? So if you're coming south, 
you, you know it's coming down a hill and you're kind of there at the bottom. In fact, this morning as we were getting ready to come to school, we, we heard an announcement uh, that there's been an accident at the intersection of Stetson Hills and Powers and avoid that they're diverting the traffic. Wow, that's, you know, that's kind of typical for Stetson Hills and Powers. I dreaded, and I don't know about you, Dr. Lambright, but I dreaded those times that I had to turn left onto Stetson Hills from Powers. Because it seemed like always I was stopped at the traffic light. Now, do you know what it's like to be stopped at that turn lane? You felt kind of like you were at a pit stop in a NASCAR race. <laughs> because they were racing down that hill at 65 miles an hour and they zoomed by you and your car would kind of shove forward from, from that. And I, and I knew that eventually if they opened up Dublin all the way to Peterson that I could avoid that intersection. And then the good news came. They opened it up, and I had a new way home. Uh, probably by now, you're just kind of filled to overflowing with the Christmas story. Maybe you've really had your fill of it by now. To be honest with you, as a pastor, I often struggled to build fresh sermons around the Advent season. It wasn't too bad when you changed churches after four years. But in my last pastorate, I was there nearly 14 years. I preached on everything. The cows, the... <laughs> I preached on everything that, that had to do with anything around the Christmas narrative. And it seemed like it was a struggle every year to have something fresh to say. But if you would just permit me tonight to revisit one passage that really spoke to me during this season. And that's out of Matthew's Gospel chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The story of the Magi. There's one verse that really captured my attention. And that verse was verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Uh, one, writer, one writer says that, that few biblical stories are as well known, yet so clouded by myth and tradition as the Magi. He writes that the only legitimate facts we know about these particular magi are given to us by Matthew. We are not told their number. We are not told their names, their means of transportation to Palestine, or the specific country or countries which they came. Matthew simply states in verses 1 and 2, The magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. You see, we are not told how the Magi knew that a king had been born. And the uniqueness of the star that informed them of the birth is as mysterious to the readers as the Magi themselves. 
The gospel does not, does not make clear how they knew or what the star was, but it does make one thing clear about these mysterious travelers from the east. They came for the purpose of worshiping the one who had been born king of the Jews. It must have seemed strange to them, if, if not shocking, that no one in Jerusalem knew that a king had been born. The gospel implies that, that King Herod scrambled to find out what in the world the Magi were talking about. He assembled the religious leaders and, and uh, experts in the scriptures and in Jewish traditions to make sense out of the question from the Magi. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. When King Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. Now, the response of the religious leaders to this hastily called meeting with the king and his question to them, their response seems really odd to me. Were they not puzzled by the king's question? Did they not wonder why the king would assemble them together on short notice to ask such a question? Were they not interested enough in the birth of Christ to investigate the question? Equally, equally uh, puzzling to me is Herod's reaction to their answer to his question. Why did Herod meet secretly with the Magi? Was Herod trying to hide them from the religious leaders? And then, why didn't he just follow the Magi to Bethlehem? We don't know the answers to questions such as these. We do know that after the Magi heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. You see, the writer says that upon leaving Herod, the Magi were overwhelmed with joy, notice, by the reappearing of the star. It led them to the house where the infant was staying. And when they arrived, they knelt, worshipped, and presented him with gifts of status, reverence, and love. And then we come back to verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
So what does this say to us today? I mean, what does it say to me? I think this scripture says to me afresh and anew that God will lead those who seek him. You know, God is forever pursuing us. And God will lead us. Just as he led the wise men, the magi with the star, he will lead us if we earnestly seek him. It also says to me that on the journey, we will meet people who are hostile toward the gospel. And we will meet others who are indifferent to the gospel message. And we should not let them impede our desire for Christ. But we will also meet people who encourage us and help us to find the way. And then it says when we discover Christ, our response will be one of worship, reverence, and gratitude. And finally, having encountered the Christ, we will return home a different way as a different person. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Uh, I was raised in the home of a preacher. Preacher's kid is what they call us, PKs. And the truth of the matter is, my, uh, my spiritual journey was one of hot and cold. It was really hot or it was really cold. It was, rare. It was never lukewarm. In, in, in fact, I always felt kind of safe with that passage out of Revelation. Well, at least God will not spew me out of his mouth. <laughs> and and it, it continued that way. I, I remember at the age of 16, I was at a, a tent meeting, and I, I distinctively heard God call me into ministry, but I, I, I wanted really no part of that. And my life with Christ was hot and cold. And when it was hot, it was really hot. When it was cold, it was really cold. And that continued through my sophomore year in college at Olivet Nazarene University when I decided at the end of my second year, or my, my, my sophomore year, the second semester, that I would, I would quit college and become a carpenter at U.S. Steel. In fact, I was accepted into the apprenticeship program and was part of the apprenticeship program when my world came crashing down. Laid off, the girl who I thought I loved and it wasn't this dear one who I really love had broken up with me and it seemed that my world had come to a crashing halt. And I remember sitting in prayer meeting on a Wednesday night and, 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 and hearing the songs on the love of God and, and, and being touched by that and getting up from that sanctuary and walking into what was the prayer room. It had been an old closet, janitor's closet, that they had made into a prayer room. And it had an open Bible and it, and it had a, a picture of Christ praying in the garden. And I knelt, I knelt there and and, and for the first time in my life, I just really got honest with God. And I said, God, how do I know that you're real? 
And how do I know what I've been taught all of my life is really true? Now, I, I'm not real mystical. And, and I'm not one of these that you just throw open the Bible and point at a scripture and say, Oh, thank you, God. Here it is. But that night, something mysterious happened in that room for me. Because every question I asked of God, it was like a star from heaven lit up that passage, that open Bible, and answered that question. And my life was forever changed. And when I came out of that room that night, I was not only a different person, but I was on a new way. And I believe that that's what this passage is teaching us. If we are in Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone. So what does the new way for a new year look like for us? Is it about resolutions? You know the typical ones. To read your Bible more, to pray more, to witness more, to eat less, to weigh less, to spend less. Uh, these are all well and good. I mean, who could fault any of us for wanting to be more disciplined in our faith and in our life habits? But I believe it is more than rev resolutions. I, I believe it is about transformation, being restored into the image of Christ himself. You see, the new way home, the new way home is the way of holiness, of Christ's likeness. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The new way home is about loving God unreservedly and loving others unconditionally. That's the new way home. Brennan Manning and Brennan Manning tells the story of a, a little boy by the name of Richard Ballinger. Uh, Richard lived in Anderson, South Carolina and the year was 1980. His mother was busy wrapping the gifts for Christmas and, and she, she asked little Richard if, if he would shine her shoes. And little Richard took her shoes and went to work on them. And in a few moments, he brought them back, beaming with pride. And he handed them to her, her, his mother, and she looked them over, and she was so proud of him, and patted him on the head, and, and said, Richard, I, you've done such a good job, I want you to have this quarter. Well, on Christmas morning, she got up and she put her shoes on. And one of the shoes had a lump in it. And she took the shoe off and reached into the shoe and brought out a quarter wrapped in paper. She opened up and read these words written in the, in the scrawling elementary handwriting of a seven-year-old. Mommy, I done it for love. 
I've done it for love. Might I suggest to you that the new way for a new year is doing it for love. And that's my prayer for each of us. That as we go forward, we will be people who are walking in a new way of loving God with all that we are and loving those around us as Christ himself would. A new way for a new year. Let's stand. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for your love and your mercy. I'm so thankful that you sought after me. And you showed me the way. I'm thankful for your transforming grace that radically changed my life and set me on a new way. Father, I pray for each of us tonight that in this year we will take the time to listen more carefully to your voice. That when we hear you speak words of grace and love to us, that we will be filled with your grace and your love. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the world around us. And I would pray that we would see that world through the eyes of Jesus. With great love and compassion. Now, Father, I pray for these, our students tonight. Seekers after you that you would guide them, that each class that they take will bring edification and encouragement to them that they might serve you more effectively and more faithfully. Pray for our faculty as they stand before each of these classes. May you empower and anoint them as they teach the eternal truths that you have laid on their hearts. And I pray for our college, oh God, that you would supply every need. And we believe you will. We're confident you will. For our trust is in you. And Father, that is the way we desire to walk. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's, shall we? In his peace, we're dismissed.